0: I never got any money from you. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. normal. This is the saucer life podcast in which we examine concepts events or people orbiting the world of flying saucers few preconceptions snark when justified no belief no kidding there's barbecues in space this is the janos people so frank johnson's book the janos people a close encounter of the fourth kind was published in 1980 and concerns a 1978 abduction case contact case i'm not sure it's a weird book. It's not often that I've happened across a book or a, or a story or an, or an encounter tale that blends the contactee and abduction genres so perfectly. It really is remarkable and frequently, oddly hilarious. Let's take a look. So, first of all, who is Frank Johnson? In the book, he's described as a retired academic with a background in biology, but that doesn't really tell us much. Now, this case, which involves a family who encountered a UFO, and the occupants of that UFO came to the attention of the UFO Investigators Network in Great Britain, and one of their lead people, Jenny Randalls, who is a phenomenally significant person with a long history in ufology. Um, This case happened in 1978 and at that time she said Johnson should investigate this. So the book begins with an author's preface and one of the things we're going to see in this book, one of the things that Johnson does that really annoys me is that there's a lot of -of out-of-order telling of the story. And I don't know if my problem with Some of this stuff is that I'm used to first-person accounts of UFO experiences and encounters or ones that are just a little better structured. But what we're going to get, and (laughs) I know I'm doing the exact same thing I'm complaining about in this book right now, is that before we've met the witnesses, before we've met anybody, before we know what's going on, We're going to find stuff out about these aliens that we haven't met yet that is going to be important later and there's a whole lot of we're going to get to this stuff in chapter six we're going to get to this stuff in chapter seven it's coming and i would rather just see things unfold sort of in the order the experiencer did or in the order that the investigator in this case johnson did so here's an example of what i'm talking about this is from the second page of the book The Janos people are, in the literal sense of the term, extraterrestrial. They come from another world, which they call Janos, a planet several thousand light-years away from the Earth. At the same time, they are terrestrial in origin. Their remote ancestors in the prehistoric past lived here and originated here. The people seen in this particular incident appear to be Europeans of a Nordic type. Can we have a spoiler alert, please? That's... really irritating. So right off the bat, I mean, okay, this is what I'm saying. I'm saying it would have been nice to have learned that these aliens originated originally on planet Earth through a scene where one of the Janos people says to one of the witnesses, we're from another planet, but we originated on what you call the Earth or something like that. Instead of, yeah, we're going to find out that these people are originally from Earth or from another planet now, but for right now, let me tell you how I got involved with this case. Just put things in order please the preface continues with johnson telling us that we're going to get involved with some hypnosis to get to the full truth of this with the hypnotist's name being jeff mccartney not mccartney like paul mccartney would spell his name but this i don't want to say obnoxious but kind of pretentious english way of of spelling it which is m apostrophe cartney Which just seems kind of unnecessary. So from the preface, we go into a prologue. And right off the bat, in the prologue, we are introduced in a little more detail to the planet Janos. Yes, before we've met the actual witnesses who encountered these things. I don't like how this is done, but I don't have a choice. Here we go. Janos. Janos is the name of a world that died. Janos was a planet very like our own. With blue seas and lakes, green fields and hills, trees and grass. With towns, cities, and quiet countryside. With ships and boats and aircraft. With pleasant single-story homes and families of men, women, and children. People very like us. People who laugh and make jokes. Gentle, kindly, sensitive people of deep understanding. Who abhor violence and will not make war, even to obtain that which they most desire. People who, even in extreme need do not want to bring trouble on others. People very like us. But perhaps in all honesty, we ought to say, the kind of people we would like to be, rather than the kind of people we of this planet too often are. So, like most contactee planets, or most planets where aliens that contactees visit come from, Janos is idyllic. It's a place that is like what we wish we could be. But it's got some... Problems. It's got two moons. They're both smaller than our moons. And one of them, called Zeton, was slowing. And eventually, it started to break up. And the people of Janos knew it was going to break up, and they knew that it was a problem. So the moon Zetas is going to break up, and this is an existential threat to the planet Janos. They look around. They search for a planet that might be suitable for them to escape to. And they happen across Earth, which is, of course, as we know, very similar to what Janos is and has been and would be potentially again or continually for the people who live there. Earth is a possible escape hatch for the people of Janos. So there's a crisis. There's going to be a disaster around the bend. But what is Janos like In the meantime, at its peak, at its height, what was this planet like? We know that the people are all good and wonderful and how we all wish we could be as humans, but what did they do? What was their lifestyle like? The few scenes we have of the old Janos paint a picture of sunlit greenery and blue water flanked by low wooded hills. On the lakes, gaily colored powerboats, pennants fluttering, throw up their smooth bow waves, ripples fanning out toward the shore, where fashionably dressed women, with their menfolk, enjoy their abundant leisure. Nearby, a peaceful community of modest, pleasant, single-story homes have flaxen-haired children in them, and white-fenced gardens around them, a scene so familiar that it touches the heart, and all this was thousands of light-years away. We'll get some more of that in a while, but just, I mean, holy suburbia in space. Good grief. And it warms the heart. It warms the heart to see affluent people with their lake houses and their motorboats. I'm sorry. As somebody who grew up in a place where people who weren't me went to the lake on the weekends in the summers, and I never did. I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of I don't know gosh let the let the moon dissolve and wipe these people out I'm just fine with that ooh there's some class angst there isn't it anyway the moon's on the verge of breaking up and they've got this glorious civilization here on janos so what happens next well the moon zeton continues to break up and the leaders of janos construct a massive fleet to evacuate the people off the planet to go to a place of safety, a planet like Earth. The problem is things happen so rapidly they aren't able to get everybody off. They try. They wait until the last possible minute, until there's nobody left to rescue. And then they leave the ruins of what had been the planet Janos. And this brings us to what happens to our family from Earth the witnesses the experiencers who encounter the janos people interesting that what are we almost 10 minutes into the show and we we finally are at the point in this book by frank johnson where we get to the actual experiencers so this makes it less of a sort of contact ebook and more of a just alien book the experiencers aren't central the aliens are central and and so The question of who the author decides to focus on is an interesting one. Here, the focus is absolutely, at least initially it seems, on the space people, the Janos people, rather than the Earth people. But now we're meeting those Earth people, and it's a family. We don't know their last names, and the first names I think are... Pseudonymous. we've got john and gloria a married couple and their daughters natasha who at the time is aged five and tanya who's aged three also part of the crew is john's sister francis now they're driving home in oxfordshire in the uk they're driving home from a family funeral and as they're doing this they see a flying saucer along the road hovering over a house but what's weird is the house wasn't there when they went back to the site, um, there's a suggestion early on that their memories are being tampered with. So the saucer hovers over the car and the witnesses, the family in the car are able to discern some good detail during this encounter. The circular craft now moved quickly over the car and away to the right of the road, somewhat behind the standing car. It sank down to a low level behind a thin row of trees, but could still be clearly seen through the gaps between the trees. A small row of colored lights now appeared all around the extreme rim of the disk. The lights were of different colors, the same color not appearing twice in succession. The whole ring of lights was revolving slowly from left to right. The craft rose and fell slowly several times, but did not quite reach the ground. Gloria and Francis could both see the craft through the rear right-hand side window of the car. In profile, it was a typical flying saucer, a biconvex lenticular disc tapering at the edges to a fairly sharp rim where the lights were. The central part was more curved, both above and below. It was all dull black, except for the lights. So after seeing the saucer, something interesting happens, and Johnson refers to a a sort of splitting of the narrative, and he says, on the one hand, you've got what really happened and what they would learn about eventually, and the, on the other hand, you have a cover story that the people told or experienced. Now, today, we'd probably use the phrase screen memory to describe what happened, but basically, From the point of view of John and Gloria and Natasha and Tanya and Francis, after the saucer sort of moves away, they just sort of continue driving. But what they remember as being real had a weird sort of dreamlike quality. John was very uneasy, and could not understand how they came to be on an unfamiliar road since there was no possibility of him having taken a wrong turning. The real road went straight into Farringdon, little more than a mile away. But this narrow, closely hedged road seemed interminable. It seemed to all of them to go on and on. The two women had a floating sensation, and all felt the car's movements to be unnaturally smooth as if it, too, were floating along, not in contact with the road, which looked rough and ill-made. The real road is broad, smooth, well-maintained, and almost completely level and straight. But this narrow dream road went up and down hills and curved to left and right. There seemed to be a lot of repetition in the details of the road. There was a characteristic pattern of a bend at a rise followed by a dip that repeated endlessly. The hedges and trees which lined the two sides of the road seemed the same, as if they were mere images. So for me, this sequence is probably the only actually sort of troubling, disturbing, creepy, weird thing in the story. The idea of you're driving along the road or a road you're familiar with. You see a strange thing in the sky. It looks like a flying saucer and then it's over. You're back in your car, you're driving, and the road isn't the road you're supposed to be on. It's close enough that you're not completely freaked out, but it's different enough that you're a little freaked out. That's very troubling to me. This sort of, I said, sort of a dreamlike quality. It's sort of a nightmarish quality in a lot of ways. So they get home and over the next few days, they they feel sick um, when they get home. They hear the sound of the saucer that very night. They have physical symptoms. The adults, not the kids. The adults have an itching on their skin, especially on their scalp. They have things that look like bruises but have no pain. And Johnson suggests that all of this could have been from exposure to radioactivity. So about a week later, John and Francis begin to have some strange dreams, some of which are waking dreams. John himself is ill from influenza. And Johnson suggests that John's sort of weird dreams that we're going to experience here were because of, quote, in his abnormal state of mind as an influenza patient, John slipped accidentally into a self-induced hypnotic trance. So basically, the amnesia that had been given them by whatever UFO they saw was breaking down because John had the flu and it facilitated a kind of mini hypnotic regression that was revealed in sort of waking dream form sure fine so john is having this dream and he's walking through the ship and there's pages and pages and pages of this book dedicated to the question of how they could have gotten onto the ship considering that they saw a door but such a door would not have been possible with the curvature of the hull who cares i don't care somehow they get on a ship john's walking through the ship with his family there's corridors they go into darkened rooms that they look into. The details are vague, but they do notice instrumentation in some of the rooms. John notices them at least. And the instruments all have dial gauges like a speedometer, switches, flashing lights, and knobs, nothing explicitly futuristic. All of it seems to be technology that would be familiar to people who lived on Earth in 1978 and actually... I'm sorry, dial gauges, switches, flashing lights, it's the bridge of the enterprise. It's not even 1978 technology, it's 1968 technology. It's interesting, but John also sees this, which seems kind of sinister. The room was roughly rectangular, its width being about 10 to 12 feet and its overall length about 15 to 18 feet. The right-hand far corner was dark and obscure from floor to ceiling. John had a feeling that someone was standing there, but could see no one. In the middle of the floor, but nearer the door by which he entered, was a black upholstered chair like a dentist's chair. With arms and headrest, the whole supported on a single stout metallic pedestal bolted to the floor. Something in his mind told him to sit in the chair, and he did so. John says that it was like a man's voice in his mind. He is clear that it was not a sound coming through his ears, but it had the quality of a sound. He is sure that it was a man's voice and not a woman's voice. John sits down in the chair, and a device comes out and clamps his leg down. And where the clamp hits corresponds to where those painless bruises are. On his leg. He's scanned with a beam. It's a white beam. And there's no feeling, there's no sensation associated with the beam. It's like a flashlight moving up and down on him, almost like it's scanning him, but he doesn't feel anything. Then he remembers being returned to the car. Francis, his sister, had another dream that was similar, walking through corridors, things like that. She's clamped on the leg, she's scanned up and down escalators very dreamlike and then she sees two men on a balcony but she doesn't know anything more about them now one of the kids natasha was five at the time and she was also having dreams of being on the spaceship and those are the words she used spaceship which johnson points out is interesting because nobody in the family used the word spaceship they said flying saucer but natasha says spaceship so what good are the recollections of a five-year-old johnson has an answer natasha was still only five years old at the time of the close encounter but for a combination of reasons she's a particularly valuable witness she's not old enough to dissemble convincingly if one may be permitted a somewhat cynical observation about the human race And though, like other people of any age, she is capable of romancing and embroidering the truth, it is immediately apparent to anyone who knows her when this is happening. You can, so to speak, see the wheels going around in her mind. She can, of course, be mistaken, but so can many adult witnesses. It's okay if she's not terribly reliable because we don't think she's lying, and even if she's wrong, she's not probably any more wrong than grown-up witnesses which i was gonna be snarky about but sure i mean i'll allow it that's fine so as we go through this chapter with natasha's testimony she's wandering through the ship her younger sister is with her mother and she notices chairs that hold her in place, sort of with arms that come around her. There's bright, twinkling lights. It's it's a kid wandering through a spaceship, basically. And I don't think we need to spend an enormous amount of time on the little details of what she sees. And the Janos people, sorry, Janos, the pronunciation is in a footnote, which actually is really helpful. The Janos people is nothing if not chock full of incredibly tiny details later on we'll have some examples of those but there's one thing in particular that johnson notes is interesting and i think is interesting and again kind of similar in the testimony from natasha who remember at the time was only five We may note here an interesting remark made by Natasha in mid-August 1979. She had been chattering quite a bit to her parents about the Flying Saucer. John asked her, Would you mind meeting the Flying Saucer people again? Natasha was by this time quite unafraid of the spaceship people, so her parents were surprised when the question brought an unmistakable flicker of fear into her expression. She answered, Well, it would be alright if it was them but it might be one of the others. When asked what she meant by this, Natasha answered, Like, some of them we saw on the planets, some of them are monsters. Natasha goes on to describe hairy creatures living in caves on planets, and Johnson compares them to Sasquatch creatures, or Bigfoot, as uneducated dopes like me call them. Natasha's testimony and her her fear of these monsters are by far the most troubling and disturbing thing we will see in this book, and I think this makes it a good time to take a little break. Next week... We will field your questions and comments about this episode, so be sure to get them to us in the comments under this episode on the website or social media through email. We've already gotten some good ones based on some pictures we put up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then um, I think I'm making an actual uh, call here. I'm calling an audible. The Janos people will be one of our incredibly rare, maybe our only second ever two-part episodes uh, for a variety of reasons one is as I was putting this episode together I didn't realize going through it taking my notes sort of sorting out quotes that there was more material in this book than I expected and also I'm having some kind of allergy attack that has rendered one of my eyes uh, more useless than usual so we'll finish up this episode after this break and it'll be um Not too much shorter than the regular length, but in two weeks from now, we're going to conclude the Janos people. There's a lot going on here, and it's strange. You can check out past episodes and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes. We greatly appreciate the support, uh, both financial and just sort of verbal and cheerleadery that we've gotten over the past going on four and a half years as always we're on Twitter and Instagram at saucer life and you can email us at the at gmail.com you can also contact us by post at chiso media department a p.o box 68 grand blank michigan 48480 and I must say that recently from a listener we received a cross stitch sort of embroidery thing that said keep watching the skies and the little embroidery loop thing and it's on a shelf here in the uh, in the studio i'll throw a picture of it up on social media this week it's one of those things that every few months i get the email saying we're renewing your post office box and i'm like oh do i really need this and then i get something like that or something like the um The the zines that we've been sent by by various people, or just a a nice letter. And I'm like, yeah, that's worth it. So for now, let's head back to Oxfordshire and the UK and finish up this first part of the Janos people. Or, I'm sorry, the Janos people, according to the footnote. I don't make the rules so after we get the chapter with natasha's testimony we get an entire chapter called entry into the spaceship and yes it goes through the various recollections through dreams or eventual hypnotic regression and all of these things that describe entering the ship it is tedious and it is taxing but eventually we get kind of a payoff and they get into the ship a sloping ramp comes down leads up to a balcony and they, they go into the ship and then they meet the occupants of the ship and finally a quarter of the way into the book we get the experiencers having sort of the bulk part of their experience. A silver-clad figure met them at the entrance hatchway and accompanied them to the foot of the ramp. It seemed quite a distance. Arrived at the ramp, the figure indicated that they should step onto it. As they did so, the ramp's surface began to move forward so that they did not need to walk, We have such moving ramps, for example, in airports. The only refinement here was the automatic start when a person stepped on. On the balcony, waiting to receive them, were three or four other silver-suited men. Francis says their manner was exactly that of a host welcoming invited guests to his home. One of them made a short speech of welcome in good, clear English, without any trace of foreign accent, though the phrasing is not quite idiomatic. Welcome to our ship. Please, you must not be afraid at all. We mean you no harm whatsoever. We are going to examine you first of all to see if you are the same as us. Then we will answer any questions that you want to ask us, and we will show you over our ship, and when that is finished, we will replace you back in your car, exactly as if you had never stopped. So now that they're on the ship and they're under hypnosis at this point. And we sort of glossed over the hypnosis thing it, because there wasn't really a lot of detail given in the book. We've got Jeff M- apostrophe Cartney doing the hypnotic regression. And that's one of the things that makes this kind of a weird hybrid contactee um, abductee story. We've got humanoid aliens on a flying saucer shaped, spaceship from a planet that had some kind of catastrophe we'll get to the details of that near the end of of the book but you've also got these elements of which i mean and those are very contacty elements and then you've got elements that are very abducty such as the screen memories and the lack of recall and needing to undergo hypnosis to get these things out and the sort of medical examination angle which is is not new where this is 1978 where this is happening 1979 where it's being recalled 1980 where it's being published we've not only had Antonio Villas Boas we've had Betty and Barney Hill and we've had the Pascagoula case which reminds me we need to do a Betty and Barney Hill episode at some point and also a Pascagoula episode at some point so We're getting into the ship, and now it is time for Francis to be examined. So why Francis? Why the sister of John and not the wife of John? Because we've got three adults here. Two get examined, John and his sister Francis, and not Gloria. And sort of the only really explanation for that is that the the three adults are all sort of separated. And the children... Are five and three at the time go with their mother. They stay with their mother. So that means, to a degree, for some reason, the aliens might not, I'm sorry, the Janos people, they're not aliens, they're from Earth from way back, remember? The Janos people might not want to have examined the mother in front of her children. So Francis is examined. She's put in the chair, there's flashing lights. There is the flashlight like beam that goes over her, and the question is what are they looking for? The Janos people seem greatly concerned about the physiological similarity between themselves and the terrestrial human race. The way I read it, in the light of what we now know about their Earth origin and their intention to return to Earth, they're anxious to know whether, in the many thousands of years since they left the Earth, Their own physiology and ours have remained sufficiently alike for them to be able to live with us on this planet john was told we wish to examine you to see if we can adapt later francis was told that medically they could find very little difference between them and us only the pulse rate was expected that if they came to live on earth this would adjust itself automatically without their having to take any special measures to correct it So, the examinations aren't for weird hybridization breeding purposes like we would see in later contactee or sorry, abductee scenarios. They aren't for torture or weirdness. They're to make sure that when the Janos people come back to Earth, that Earth is actually compatible with the way they need to live, with the conditions under which. They need to survive, which I don't know. Let's think about this. Let's think about this in terms of how Earth might react to the ragtag survivors of a doomed civilization, a lost civilization, showing up, examining people, messing with their brains, messing with their memories, all to determine if Earth as it is now is suitable for them to what? Recolonize or colonize again? Reinhabit? What about the earthlings who have shown up in the meantime? How do we know that these people really are from earth? They wear jumpsuits. Some of us wear jumpsuits. Is that really the only thing that we can sort of count on? It's a question that Johnson is actually going to address and speculate about later in the book. There are socio-political implications to the space people showing up and saying, Hey, we'd basically like to move back in with our great 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 times a billion grandkids because, you know, we don't have a place anymore. So after her examination, Francis meets with various members of the alien crew, including one of their leaders, in a break room. Yes, it's it's a break room. That's the best way I can describe it. There's a picture up on Instagram and Twitter and I believe Facebook as well, but I'm going to describe this to you if you don't have access to those or haven't seen them. The room has a number of tables. On the diagram, there are six tables sorry 12 t- I can't do math. there are two sets of six tables which is 12 tables with four chairs each and they've got a diagram sort of a detail of the chair and it is a chair that's sort of a a sort of 70s looking chair curves up around the hips goes about halfway up the back, bolted onto the floor uh, probably swivels on one wall there is a drinks dispenser, Doesn't say anything about any kind of food, but a drinks dispenser. On another wall, there is a very tiny screen, a very tiny screen sort of tucked away in the corner. And Frances and her companion, who we will meet shortly, sit at this table in the corner looking at the screen. It looks, for all the world, like the lounge, the crew lounge, the mess hall on the Enterprise on the old Star Trek. The chairs except for being bolted onto the floor, look a whole lot like the chairs that Uhura and Sulu and Chekhov and Mr. Spock sat on on the bridge of the Enterprise. It's very clear that there are science fiction televisual cues that are playing into the illustrations here. So Frances is in the break room. She's with a leader of the aliens, and she is going to be given a lesson about what exactly is going on. So Francis is meeting with a man whose jumpsuit has a large white disc on the chest, and he asks Francis her name, and then he says, my name is, this is how it's spelled, U-X-I-A-U-L-I-A. And the notes, the the way it is, it is sort of explained here. It is pronounced Uxia Yulia. That is not a name I'm going to be able to pronounce without a number of takes. Another reason why this episode is two parts is because the amount of time it's going to take to re-record me saying Uxia Yulia correctly. So Uxia Yulia explains to Francis a number of things about what is going on, um, about the destruction of their home planet, about their search for... Another Place to Live. She's shown videos about how they lived. And she's shown videos, and this is where in the preface, um, Frank Johnson got this. She's shown videos of the barbecue, the picnic that people had, a lakeside barbecue scene. And what is amazing about this book, this is probably the most... I said in the show notes this is one of has become one of my favorite UFO books over the last few weeks as I've been working on this episode and I think one of the things that sealed the deal for me is the fact that they spend or sorry Johnson spends I said they I said they like the Janos people were real people explaining this and I don't want to make that assumption. Johnson spends a remarkable amount of time relaying the appearance of the barbecues used by the Janos people. Folks, this is a real thing that was in a real book published by a real publisher bought by real people, including me. The barbecue stove itself was a rectangular metal box, dark-colored, about 3 feet and 18 inches square on plan. Toward the bottom of each face was a series of horizontal ventilating slots to allow air intake. The heat was smokeless, and there was nothing to indicate how it was produced. There were no visible electrical leads. On the square open top, several long metal skewers lay across the box. Each held a series of lumps of dark-colored flesh cooking in the heat. Yulia told her, About the meat, as he called it, we get them from the rivers. A man, who wore only swim trunks sensibly because the job was a warm one, kept turning the skewers. As he did so, from time to time, he poured an oily liquid over the food from a small frying pan, just an ordinary frying pan, which he balanced on one corner of the box to keep it hot. Several couples or small groups of people sat around on the ground eating, talking, and generally having fun. Francis says they ate the kebabs with their fingers, but she was not sure if they would do so at home. After all, this was only a picnic. What is happening to the magic of ufology? What is happening to the magic of scientific investigation of the paranormal? It is, folks, this is 1980. And what is glorious about this book? What is wonderful about this book and what I I just adore about it is yeah, maybe I was a little snarky about it setting it up, but everybody we've got two paragraphs about a space barbecue and space kebabs and space marinade from a normal frying pan. This is glorious. This might be, I'm not sure where the show goes from here Um, because we've, we've hit peak goofiness, but that's not the only thing going on. There are other forms of recreation happening at this picnic among the Janos people. They have boats. These are boats that would be like the boats that are futuristic that space people might use. The midship section was open, with seats for the crew, but the bow and stern section were closed in above. A low windscreen, curved and raked, rose up at the front of the open midship section. The effect was not unlike that of a sports car, translated into boat terms. It's a boat. It's a speedboat. It's the type of boats that had since the 1930s and 40s. I was honestly incredibly surprised that nobody was water skiing behind these boats. This is the last chapter we're going to look at in this first part of the Janos people. It's sort of a, a nice halfway point. This story Francis is told about the, the lifestyle of of the Janos people before their moon broke apart and, and ruined the planet and forced them to flee. But what's fascinating about this is this is this planet is a vision of what people in 1978 in Britain or in the United States for that matter, in a country that was deindustrializing, that was... Economically, not in great shape. The 70s were not any kind of golden era for almost anything except for certain bad television shows, if you're somebody like me. The alien people, the, the, the Janos people, lived a life before their disasters hit that was basically an ideal suburban middle-class life. And I think that's just fascinating. We we don't know at this point a lot about their politics. There's no, at this point in the story, no sort of critical preaching about man's inhumanity to man. We know they're generally good people who don't get into trouble, don't cause trouble, and they're living a good, peaceful, prosperous life. This is fascinating to me. And it's fascinating enough to me that between this and the bizarre allergy thing attacking my eyes, I think we're going to end here and continue the story of the Janos people next time. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you have questions or comments about this first part of our Janos People episode, send them in to us via the usual social media channels or email channels, and we'll address it on our feedback episode next week. Also, if I can pull it off schedule-wise, I might um, ask the saucer wife to listen to this episode and give us our opinions. She always has some fairly good opinions and questions. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizomedia LLC. Chizomedia, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.